We're going to begin this morning and study our Confession of Faith. Confession of Faith is found in the back of the blue hymnal, starting at the bottom of uh, page 670. It's just right after the last hymn, which is hymn number 774. To get to hymn 774, and then after that comes a Confession of Faith starting in page 670. So, are we ready to start, Paul? All right, so let's pray and ask for God's blessing as we start Sunday school again. Father, thank you for the privilege of getting into your house on your day with your people, studying your holy word together. We pray that you would draw near to us. Thank you for the privilege of doing this again after so long. And we pray now that you would attend it with your presence, power, and grace. Bless your people in Jesus' name. Amen. So today I want to start our study of the 1689 London Confession of Faith. And I want to give an overview which sets out the big picture of what the confession is and what I hope to accomplish by studying it together. And I want to begin to set the big picture into perspective by asking you to turn with me, please, in the Bible to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. Now, this is a passage that we've uh, considered before. The text where I want to start is at the very end of Ephesians 3, and then I want to read into Ephesians 4. And then the focus of what I'm going to read is on Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16. And this sets a biblical foundation to put into perspective what we're doing. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21, speaking of God, it says... Unto him, unto God, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, giving diligence to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then after he speaks about the connection of spiritual unity uh, with conversion and the experience of divine grace, in verse 11, he shows the connection of spiritual unity with the ministry of the Word and grounding God's people in the Christian faith. We read in verse 11, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints unto the work of ministry, unto the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a full-grown man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men in craftiness after the wiles of error, but speaking truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him, who is the head, even Christ, from whom all the body fitly framed and knit together 
through that which every joint supplies, according to the working and due measure of each several part, makes the increase of the body into the building up of itself in love. Now the concern in this context is God's glory in the church in every generation until Christ returns. And immediately, first and foremost, he connects with God's glory the preservation of the unity of the Spirit in the churches. Now he doesn't say that Spiritual unity is the only aspect of church life that glorifies God. He goes on in the rest of chapter 4 and in chapter 5 and in much of chapter 6 to describe other things that glorify God in the church. But first and foremost, God is glorified when a church maintains spiritual unity. And then he speaks about the things that promote this unity and preserve it. A gracious demeanor. Lowliness, long-suffering, and love. Genuine conversion. But he spends most of his time not on a gracious demeanor or genuine conversion, but on the unity of the faith, upon grounding God's people in the church, all of them in the truth, till we all attain, not just the elders, not just the deacons, but all of us, all of the church members, attain the unity of the faith till every person in the church is grounded in the sound doctrines of the Christian faith so that we are not susceptible to instability and error and deception because we live in a world that is full of error, full of deception, full of heresy, and we are vulnerable to be misled by it. And for this reason, it promotes disunity and schism and harm in the church when God's people are led astray by error and deceived by it, when they're spiritually immature and unstable and not grounded in the faith. And God specifically and Christ personally gave to the church not only apostles and prophets in the foundational generation, but pastors and teachers in every generation for the purpose of grounding God's people in the sound doctrines of the Christian faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And you might say to me, okay, all well and good. Well, what's that have to do with confessions of faith? What in the world does that have to do with a confession of faith? Which brings me to my second point this morning by way of the big picture. All right, you looked at the first part of the big picture which is the tremendous importance of all God's people attaining to the unity of the Christian faith and being rooted and grounded in the sound doctrines so that they're not susceptible to be led astray by error. And it doesn't pertain just to spiritual leaders, not just to church officers, but it pertains to all God's people. So what's that have to do with confessions of faith? Well, let me ask and then answer three introductory questions which should help to explain the connection between Ephesians and grounding God's people in the truth and maintaining spiritual unity and a confession of faith. Well, what is a confession of faith? A confession of faith is a comprehensive and orderly declaration of what we believe the Bible teaches about the most important thing. It's not about peripheral issues. 
But it's an orderly and comprehensive declaration of what we believe the Bible teaches about the most important things. Well, if that's true, then there's an inherent connection between the confession of faith and grounding God's people in the Christian faith. And for this reason, the benefits of the confession of faith are that it promotes spiritual unity and that it exposes error, every wind of doctrine, and that it encourages fellowship, dialogue, and development with other Christians. When we state and present in an orderly way the things most surely believed among us, it promotes dialogue with our Christian brothers and sisters. So what place should a confession of faith have in church life? Well, it should promote the stability of the church and protect the purity of the church. And it should promote and not replace scripture as the ultimate authority for what the church believes and how it lives. And in order for it to do that, we have to avoid extremes. The one extreme is what you could call an absolute subscription to a confession of faith which affirms that every word in the 1689 Confession in its original sense is true and can't be improved on. We don't want to go down that road. That's one extreme. And the other extreme is a loose subscription, which says that the Confession is true as far as it agrees with Scripture. Well, that may be right, but that's not really holding to the Confession of Faith at all. You can believe anything and say that. But then there's what I think is a balanced position, which is that I say, I affirm, that everything that the confession says is true, except as noted. So yeah, this is what I believe, and if it isn't what we believe, I'm going to note that we differ from this statement. It's not inspired, it's not infallible, but it is beneficial. To state comprehensively, and in an orderly way, the things most surely believed among us about the most important doctrine. But not to replace the Bible, but rather to promote the Bible as our ultimate and infallible source of authority for everything we believe. Now, so I looked first of all at the biblical foundation, and then what a confession is. Now, let me speak specifically about our own London confession in the time that remains this morning. Let me talk about it and give you a brief overview and put that into perspective. The developers, I refer to them as our Baptist fathers. Our confession of faith was originally published in 1689 by pastors and other brothers who represented over a hundred Baptist churches in England and Wales. They met in London from July 3rd to 11th on 1689. And from that gathering, they published our London Confession of Faith, along with an introductory letter to the, quote, judicious and impartial reader. And in that letter, they explained why they were publishing a confession and what they were trying to do in it. And then it was signed by 37 people who appended their names to it as representatives of the respective churches. 
They based it very closely on other documents. And they did that on purpose. They based it very carefully and closely on the Westminster Confession, which was published in the 1640s. They also based it very carefully on the Savoy Declaration and the Savoy Platform of Polity, which were published in 1650, 1658, by, quote, John Owen in the Independence. And somebody told me once that John Owen in the Independence sounds like the name of a band. But it's not. It's the name of a, a denomination of British people. And then it's also based on the first London Confession, which was published in the 1640s by seven congregations in London. So you have these, this source material for the 1689 Confession of Faith. They didn't just sit down from these hundred churches and just write this stuff out of nowhere. And they specifically and purposely, even though it was originally drafted and first published years earlier in 1677, they met again and published it formally in 1689 because in England in 1677, it wasn't legal to be a Baptist. And it was published in what appears to have been an underground manner in 1677. And it wasn't until the so-called bloodless revolution of 1688 that it was legal to be a Baptist. And in 1689, in the summer, they met. And then they published it formally. So that's something of the background the history of it, and in that introductory letter, they basically state that the method is this, that I'm paraphrasing them, but this is what they tried to do. They said, we want to express our unity with our brothers and sisters in the Reformed faith. They think they said brothers, but they meant brothers and sisters. In the Reformed faith, and we want to express our unity with the Presbyterians, that wrote the Westminster Confession, with the Congregationalists that wrote the Savoy Declaration, and with those Baptists in London that wrote the first London Confession. And so what they did is they followed the structure of the Westminster and Savoy Declaration. They followed that structure exactly. And in many places, they quoted mostly from the Savoy, which also was based on Westminster, they, they quoted it verbatim in many places. And they combined what the Baptists said with what the Presbyterians and Congregationalists said, and they put them together. And you'll see as we go through various instances of that. Now, I personally, I love studying stuff like that. I love studying the source material. And there's one other thing they did. When it comes to the doctrine of the church, they did something that's absolutely unique in terms of confessions. If you did happen to look at what was chapter 25 of the Savoy or chapter 25 of the Westminster, and then chapter 20, oh, wait a minute. I think it's chapter 26 in Savoy, chapter 25 of Westminster, chapter 26 in the London Confession, because the Savoy added chapter 20, which is not in the Westminster, and so we copied chapter 20 from the Savoy. Anyway, yeah, so 
In the Savoy, the church is 26. In our confession, the church is chapter 26. And in the Westminster, 25. Now, if you look in there, the Savoy doctrine of the church has like a few paragraphs. The Westminster doctrine of the church has a few paragraphs. Our doctrine of the church has 15 paragraphs. Now, where does that, where's all that extra material come from? Well, this is what they did. In 1658, John Owen and the Independents also published the Savoy Platform of Church Polity, which was separate from their Confession of Faith, and it had 30 different articles. And what the Baptists did is they went into that polity, and they took a whole bunch of those articles, and they took them and incorporated them right into the Confession of Faith so that they included church polity among the things most surely believed among us. But they didn't just copy it verbatim, and they didn't just copy it mindlessly. Some of the ideas they changed and altered, but basically, wherever they could, with humility, they expressed their unity with the, Bapt with the Baptists of the former generation, with the Congregationalists, and with the Presbyterians. I think what they did is absolutely brilliant, masterful, humble, genius, actually but not inspired. The Bible's inspired, not the 1689. But that's how they put it together. Isn't that remarkable? Now, I love studying that. So I don't know whether you're going to like getting into all that kind of detail or not. Some of you may think that's getting into the weeds. Maybe it is a little weedy there, a little muddy. But, you know, we wear our boots. We walk around in the mud. But it's interesting to me to see what the original was. You have a question about wearing boots? I, now what was, where was I going with it? I was in the weeds. Now I'm lost in the woods. But ask your question first, and if I have a thought, I'll finish it. What's your question? Yes. Throughout England, England and Wales, yes. I really don't know. That's one thing I don't claim that I am a, a, a student in that kind of historical theology. I mean, I know somebody who is, but it's not me. So I, I'm sorry, I can't answer that question because I just don't know. Um, it's a good question. I, just, I really don't know. I don't have enough knowledge to know that. Anyway, I personally like putting it together. I like putting together, okay, this is all the source material. Where did they get this? Where did they get this? Where did they get this? Why did they change this? Why did they change this? Why did they change that? What made them do that? Why did they remove this? Why didn't they say that? Why did they change what John Owen wrote about there being four offices in the church? And every place where he wrote that, they changed it to two. 
So it's significant that they weren't about to write that there were four offices in the church because they think there's two, elder and deacon, not four. You follow what I'm saying? So if you go into the Savoy platform of polity, and he's talking about his church polity, and Owen's got four offices, they copied most of those paragraphs, but they changed those things. And that, to me, is enlightening that our Baptist fathers didn't just copy down willy-nilly what the other people said, but that they read it, they respected it, and yet when their conscience required it, they changed it in order to be submissive to Scripture. The other thing they did, the Westminster Confession provided biblical support for everything they said in the Confession. At least they tried to. And our Confession of Faith follows suit. And our Baptist fathers support everything that they say with Scripture. Now, in this class, one of the things I want to try to do is to highlight how Scripture affirms and confirms and supports all the doctrinal statements that are found in the Confession of Faith. That your faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, and that it would rest and grow out of Scripture, and that the final authority in our church would never be our confession of faith, but the Holy Scriptures. And the, the, the confession of faith is useful only as it serves to highlight what the Scripture teaches about the most important things. Now, that brings me to the final thing that I want to address this morning, which is to give you an overview of the confession of faith. So please now refer to the handout. All right, let me try to give you an overview of what's in the confession of faith. As I say, the basic structure comes from the Westminster Assembly that met in the 1640s to develop a confession for the what was then a state church, not an Anglican one. And I have on the left-hand side a topical outline in the column on the left, and in the right-hand side a chapter outline. So if you look at the right-hand side, you can see that it goes from 1 to 32. Because there's 32 chapters. Do you follow that? If you look at the left-hand side, it goes from 1 to 7. Because I arrange it in terms, these 32 chapters, in terms of seven major basic topics. So in 32 chapters, the confession of faith covers seven fundamental themes or topics or ideas. First of all, in chapter 1, it presents the theme of the Word of God, that our faith is founded upon and built upon the Scripture as the Word of God. Secondly, in chapters 2 and 3, it presents an overview of what the Bible says about God, about God and His decree. Thirdly, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, the confession of faith addresses the original creation, the creation of the world, in chapter 4, God's providence by which he upholds and governs the world in chapter 5, and the ruin of the, uh, of the world through the fall of, 
of man into sin. Then, the next major theme is salvation from sin. Confession of faith features or stresses this theme in chapters 7 through 18. Begins with the framework or promise of salvation in chapter 7, the covenant of grace. And in chapter 8, it moves to the accomplishment of salvation through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapters 9 through 18, you have the unique focus of the Westminster Assembly and Savoy and our confession of faith, which is the mature insight of that mighty revival known as the Reformation into the nature of Christian experience and the Christian life the application of salvation in the Christian life, the foundation of the Christian life, free will, in chapter 9, the blessings of the Christian life, effectual calling, chapter 10, justification, chapter 11, adoption, chapter 12, and sanctification, chapter 13, and then the graces of the Christian life, faith, chapter 14, repentance, 15, good works, 16, Perseverance, 17, and Assurance, 18. So the organizing principle is the divine blessings and then the Christian graces. The divine blessings of calling, justification, adoption, sanctification, followed by the graces of faith, repentance, good works, perseverance, and assurance. All of this focused on the application of salvation in the Christian life, a unique insight of the riches of spiritual blessing that we as God's people possess in Christ. And then the fifth thing that the confession of faith focuses on is what I call Christian ethics or Christian duty. And in chapters 19 to 21, the confession sets forth the foundations or fundamentals of Christian ethics. The major principles of Christian ethics, the law of God, chapter 19, the gospel of God, chapter 20, which, as I said, was not in the Westminster Confession, but added by John Owen and the Independents in 1658. And chapter 21, liberty of conscience. So you have the law, the gospel, and Christian liberty as the fundamentals or foundations of Christian ethics. And then... Next, the framework of Christian ethics or Christian duty, which is the creation ordinances, the creation institutions. Firstly, the institution of religious worship and the Sabbath day. And they, ha they cover that in chapters 22 and 23. And then the state or government, the civil magistrate in 24, and the family, marriage, in chapter 25. So you have the creation ordinances of worship, and government and family as the framework of Christian ethics or duty. And then the sixth major heading is chapter 26, the Christian church. Uh, I'm sorry, chapters 26 through 30, the Christian church. And in presenting the Christian church, as I said a little earlier, in chapter 26, our confession of faith is absolutely and utterly unique. Wonderfully unique. 
because it not only presents the principles of the church universal, but it also presents the polity that the Lord has ordained for local churches. And so the principles are taken from the Savoy and Westminster Confessions, but the polity is taken from the Savoy platform of polity. Then in 27, they speak about the communion of saints, and in 28 to 30, the ordinances. The ordinances or sacraments in general, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and then 29, they focus on baptism and 30, the Lord's Supper. And then the last thing that the confession addresses is the world to come. And in chapter 31, it presents life after death, and in chapter 32, the final judgment. So it starts with the word of God, and it ends with the world to come. Scripture, God, creation, salvation, Christian ethics, the Christian church, and the world to come. That's the way the confession of faith presents the things most surely believed among us. At least that's the way I personally outline it. Now, I'm not claiming that my outline is right and any other outline is wrong. But this is the way I see its development. With regard to its doctrinal commitment, its orthodox Christian, its Calvinistic, its covenantal, its Puritan, and it is Baptist. So we are orthodox, Christian, covenantal, Calvinist, Puritan, Baptist. Those are the doctrinal distinctives that are displayed in our confession of 